Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. Is that the beating of a telltale heart, or is it just my excitement for today's guest? I'm so happy to welcome to the show a dear friend of mine. He is an award-winning filmmaker behind the featured Vindication and Tales of Poe. He also is an acclaimed photographer whose work has been traveling the country. Please welcome to the show Bart Mastronardi. Thank you. Thank you. Very, very happy to be here. I see there's this uh, ring for a kiss. Who's kissing me then? <laughs> oh, well, we've never actually established that. I don't know that any other guest has ever rung the kiss bell. Um, it's that so... I hate to pull back the curtain for those of you in the Emerald City, but um, we're not the only podcast that uses this studio. And so every now and then there's ephemera left behind from other shows. And in the middle of the table where we record, there is a little pink bell from Las Vegas, Viva Las Vegas, uh, that says ring for a kiss. And Bart, uh, 20 episodes into the show, is the first person to ever actually (laughs) ring it. Uh, so who knows? I mean, maybe maybe a ghost of Christmas past, because uh, Christmas just passed, um, will come and give you a smooch. But anyway, we digress. Welcome to the show, Bart. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, I'm really excited to have you here. Uh, you know, of course, you're a dear friend. We've made f- films together, so this is uh, going to be crazy, I hope. Um, <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. This is nice, and it's good to have this conversation. Yeah. Well, why don't we kick things off the same way I do every show same first question i ask every guest and it is simply this why horror and you can interpret that any way you want what's your point of reference uh what speaks to you about the genre but why horror uh horror has always been the genre whether it's been film or books or uh even visuals that kind of always spoke to me there's a there's a darkness there that even myself i like to go to um it's always been i think a sense of misunderstanding and I think there's this kind of place that we all want to go to to be understood. And horror was the one kind of genre that I felt I, I always understood. Mm-hmm. And it was the only way that I could kind of express myself. Um, you know, unicorns and rainbows were kind of cute, but they <laughs> weren't kind of, I don't know, a darker unicorn with a kind of deeper, you know, muted rainbow kind of feel to it. It was something that I was always drawn to, um, particularly the horror films. Right. Uh, horror films in general were always the genre that I always kind of watched, particularly like Frankenstein, the Friday the 13th, anything in which the monster was kind of empathetic, in which we kind of felt some, they, they didn't ask for it. They were kind of just given. And I kind of felt connected to that in many ways. Um, in terms of books and stuff, like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, mm-hmm. uh, Clive Barker, Stephen King, they always kind of drew me in to these dark emotions that I kind of felt. And horror is nothing more than an emotion. And I kind of right. like, like to go there uh, only in art. I don't like to live my life in a very dark way. Uh, I'm right. kind of pretty lighthearted on many things. But... The expression of misunderstanding and trying to understand what we fear or we have anxieties about and express that through the genre kind of has always been appealing to me, even as a kid, even as a kid. Like Darth Vader was like my favorite villain Um, because I always felt as badass as he was, there was this there was this little boy inside that kind of grew up and uh, turned into this kind of a monster. It's so interesting that we separate the notion of horror and science fiction and fantasy. And so, like, you know, a, a creature, and he is, in a way, a creature, like Darth Vader, uh, isn't really often thought of by the zeitgeist as a movie monster. But I, I think that, in a way, he is a definitive movie monster. Uh, and I, I've not had anyone on the show bring up Star Wars or Darth Vader yet, but it's something that I've often thought about because he is the Frankenstein monster in some way. He is is uh, pieces put together by darkness. Yes. And um, I don't know. I think there's something kind of scary about it. But you're right, sympathetic, because especially we were led on this saga, as mm-hmm. I think we are legally obligated to refer to it, uh, wherein we saw his his downfall. Yeah, he's, he's almost, and again, another kind of character, I'll say, is the uh, biblical reference to Lucifer, mm-hmm. who is the fallen angel, um, who expresses his love for the higher power and kind of wants to be almost like the higher power, but is kind of jealous of that and is kind of thrown off and casted out um, with the demons to go with him. Uh, so again, to go back to Darth Vader, it's that fallen angel 
um, we rise to this this sense of um, this sense of goodness, mm-hmm. uh, and then we kind of we kind of falter through our own um, faults with it. It's very Greek tragic in a way. And you reference the fact that you've always been drawn to the more sympathetic monsters. Uh, and one of the things that we discuss often in the show is the queer relationship to horror. Do you think that draw to the sympathetic outsider has a relationship with queer identity? Uh, for me, it does, yes. Because, uh, uh, again, it's that misunderstood. Um, I think with queer identity, we ourselves are just trying to find a place in the world where in a world that is so antagonistic at times. Um, it's great that I think Australia just said that same-sex marriage is legal now in Australia. And I think I just found that out yesterday or the day before. Um, so we're always trying to connect to uh, something that we want to be a part of. But when we're rejected from it, we don't quite understand. So we have to create things that we ourselves can connect to or try and interpret through art or through music or through dance or, or um, through movies. Mm-hmm. Um, Jason Voorhees, Darth Vader... Those are two characters that are always kind of the Frankenstein monster. Again, these are characters that uh, didn't ask to be this way. They kind of become this way. Right. And I think with with being a gay man myself, um, I didn't ask to be this as defined as gay because right. I don't kind of understand what the word gay means. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand that I am a man who just has sexual attractions to other men. Right. On the Kinsey scale, it'd be one out of ten. I'd be a ten. Um, so for me. The identification of falling in love with a man, which is very misunderstood by a majority of society, right. kind of makes me feel like the Frankenstein monster or the Jason Voorhees or the Darth Vader or the Lucifer. And I do think that it, at this point in the series, it's important to kind of take a moment and discuss because I've had uh, listeners write and, and ask, you know, why is it? that queer people identify with the monster. And it's not, well, the false equivalency there is that we don't view ourselves as monsters, but we see ourselves as outsiders and we yes. get uh, that sense of otherness. And when otherness is represented in art in that way, of course it's going to embody something fantastical, but those emotions are very much rooted in reality. And that's what we identify with. Yes, yes, 100%. Yeah, because I don't think that you, I knowing you as a kind and gentle person, share much in common with Jason Voorhees. No, not uh, at all. <laughs> other I, than maybe, you know, a penchant for a good flannel from time to time. Once in a while, once in a while. <laughs> I, I, and, you know, it is, again, it's like, I think we're like, and they're movies and it's art and we have fun with it and we can kind of express ourselves with it. But um, I would never want to come up against Jason Voorhees. Right. I would never want to be Jason Voorhees because that's... That, that is on its own level, even Darth Vader or a Lucifer character. These are also characters that, even though I empathize with them or try and understand why they become the way they've become, these are villains also at the same time. Of course. Who have no sense of compassion or something. No, I remember uh, when I was reading the Harry Potter books for the first time, having a very uh, animated discussion with a literature professor that I had. And uh, I told her that I thought that Voldemort was a sympathetic character. And she's like, well, he's evil. And I'm like, yeah, but J.K. Rowling took the time to show us his fractured childhood. Yes. That doesn't mean that he's not a bad person. Bad things happen to people and they become assholes and bad things happen to people and they become heroes. Yes. It's what you choose in that moment. Mm -hmm. you said you wouldn't want to come up against Jason Voorhees, and I want to talk a little bit about Friday the 13th because I know it's tied into your personal history, but I do have to ask first, do you think you could survive a Friday the 13th movie? <laughs> I've seen enough of them to know the ins and the outs of it, so I would say yes, I would. All right. All Study, right. You know, studying you know, Adrian King, Amy Steele, Dana Kimmel, Kimberly Beck, uh, Melanie Kinnaman, Jennifer Cook. I'll go on. I mean, I could talk about Friday 13 all the time. I, I've, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, yes, I, I think I could. I think I could. So my love for horror films kind of came from my dad, mm-hmm. who would take me to the movies all the time. So I equivocate my love for movies and being a filmmaker to two movies. Um, one is six years old. I saw my dad took me to see Star Wars. And then in 1984, I was on Easter break, and I remember... Uh, getting the courage up to ask my dad to say, could I go see Friday the 13th, the final chapter? And which is part four of the series at the time. Right. And my mother and father were just like, are you sure you want to go see this thing? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I couldn't even watch the previews because I was so terrified of it. So I was 12 years old and my dad 
took myself, uh, took me and my cousin to the movie theater, the Elmwood Movie Theater on Queens Boulevard in Queens, which is now, I think, a church of science or something, Christian <laughs> place. Uh, and it was packed. And this was before cell phones. This was before like Fandango. This was before all that. You had to go to the movie theater to go buy it and buy your tickets. And we got down there and the line was wrapped around the corner, down the block, around the other corner, just to see Friday the 13th, the final chapter. And everybody was, you know, heavy metal people were there and, you know, girls and boys were there. Uh, Teenagers were going to go. Everybody was flocking to go see. I think it was like the number three movie of 1984 made that much money. Wow. And I remember my dad being a police officer we walked up to the front of the line. He flashed his badge and he bought the tickets and we just walked right in. <laughs> and I remember where we sat. We sat like in the fifth row from the back over to the right. And the Paramount sign started and Harry Manfredini's music started. And then they give you the montage of the first three films. And I remember by the time the movie was, and I'm, I was a chubby little kid. So I had my fingers over my eyes watching this movie for the entire time. But the thing that I fell in love with was... I, I wasn't a big TV fan. I was a big movie fan because movies are big. Right. Like, these things are bigger than us. A television, I could just turn it off. I could walk, but you can't turn the screen off because it's bigger than you. And I remember at 12 years old, loving this character, Jason, and being mesmerized by the makeup and the music and the editing and um, the directing. And I, I remember falling in love with it. And it was at that moment when I walked out of there that I knew I wanted to be a part of making movies. And Mm -hmm. I didn't know what a director did. I didn't know. I thought I had to be an actor to do all this. And I fell in love with Jason at that point. And I did. I I still have this huge crush on that character. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's something really interesting that occurred to me while you were talking about um, being wrapped up in the idea of movies and using movies to sort of face your fear, because that's what Friday the 13th, the final chapter, is ultimately about. Tommy yeah. Jarvis is a movie fan, mm-hmm. and he uses his knowledge and, and, and passion for effects and makeup and movies to fight Jason. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's kind of like your journey, in a way, paralleled his seeing that, because you said you were afraid to see it. Oh, my God. I, I remember the week before part two was on on television and I wouldn't even watch it. My cousin, my cousin who saw the film with me, um, I wouldn't even watch it. I think it was the opening scene with Adrian and, uh, Alice is killed with the, the ice pick in her head. And I was like, I can't watch this, but yet I was so fascinated to go watch it in the movie theater. And I also felt like if I could see Friday the 13th, then that kind of elevated me to the next step of being an adult. So you made the conscious decision, even though you were afraid. Yeah. That, like, I have to do this. Yes, that was that was exactly it. And I think having Corey Feldman in the film as a, as a 12, 13-year-old boy, I connected to that. And I mm-hmm. think had it just been Kimberly Beck surviving and there was no little – there was no family aspect to it, right. I think I may not have connected as well. But I think having that boy who was into makeup effects and horror, the same way that I was feeling at that moment, I think I connected to that film even more. So seeing that movie, you make – the the choice within that you want to be involved in film some way. Yeah. But you were, how old? You said 13? 12? When I saw it Friday the 13th? Uh, 12. I mean, obviously, it's a long journey from a 12-year-old to someone who directs motion pictures. So yeah. what were the steps after that? Like, you said you thought you needed to become an actor. Did you get involved in acting? I did. I became involved in acting when I was about 17. I joined a community theater group by uh, by my house, and the way that I found it was my biology teacher in high school um, was actually working there. I just happened to bump into her after, I think it was church, and um, she says, oh, we're doing a community theater. I think they're doing The Wizard of Oz. So I went down, I would see all the shows. And then finally I got, again, the courage up to be like, I want to be a part of this. I want to be a part of making costumes and being on set and the lights and stuff like that. So I became involved with community theater. And then when I graduated high school, I uh, studied film at Hunter College in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the th- then it kind of faltered a little bit because we were still – we weren't in digital. We were still in film and we were in videotape. Right. And nobody was making movies on videotape. It looked like crap. But, <laughs> but for a filmmaker, it was great to make – at least short films on videotape because at least it gave you the understanding of how to direct and work. Right. So what I learned by being in a community theater um, was I didn't want to be an actor, but it was a great training ground. I wanted to be the person behind the scenes. I wanted to call the shots. And while I was doing that, I also got an agent and I was doing a lot of background acting work. So I did um, City Slickers and Bronx Tale and Energizer commercials. 
Um, and I realized, like, acting's not for me. I, I'm bored to death with just standing in front of a camera and trying to look pretty. I want to be behind the camera and kind of be creative. Right. And once I got to college, I was working with it, but film became rather challenging because it's so expensive to work with. So getting up the courage to work with video was great because then my friend Frank and I got together and we made <laughs> my first film that I ever made is called Shampoo Girl from Hell. Okay. And then, yeah. <laughs> then I made the sequel because, you know, the first one just made like $10, so that was good, and everybody was clamoring for it. And I made Shampoo Girl Goes to Hell, the final wash. And that was literally like 30 minutes long. And I literally had the hair cutter from heaven, who was an angel, versus the Shampoo Girl from Hell, who was a demon, who was actually played by my friend Frank because he did the Rocky Horror Picture Shows. Um, and I have those in New York. I have to bring them back to L.A. And uh, and that kind of just started. And we were editing with from VHS to VHS. That's how we edited. Uh, and I always like to ask when filmmakers reference that kind of first foray into filmmaking, when was the last time you watched those? Oh, my God. Years ago. I would say it's probably about 15 years ago. When I go back to New York for Christmas, I'm, I have to bring them back. So I have to ask, because you referenced earlier that your dad was a police officer, and right. you grew up in New York. You're a born and bred New Yorker. Yes. Uh, so, you know, you come from this, like, police officer, New York background, like a guy's guy kind of world. What was the reaction? I imagine you were the first actor, <laughs> filmmaker, like someone who was like, I want to go do this. What did your family think when you were like, I'm going to go to film school? <laughs> um, that's nice, dear. Go get a real job. <laughs> take all the city tests you can possibly take. Be a teacher. You'll have a nice life. <laughs> and there are days sometimes I'm just like, maybe they were right. But then you're like, no, no, no. You you have to do it. You got to. I didn't listen. Right. Um, I wasn't a rebel kid. I wasn't. I'm very far from that. Uh, but I always kind of was. If I did something that I didn't want to do, it never felt right. Right. When I do things that feel right for me, I know it's good. Um, and I always listen. And it's a, I guess it's a cliche, but I really did listen to my heart. And it's kind of brought me to where I'm at right now. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm very fortunate that I, I understand why parents say that. Because the arts are a business in which, and again, it's a business. Art is what we bring to it. Right. But it's a business in which it is rather challenging to make a living out of it in terms of medical benefits and retirement funds and things like that. And I understand. I totally understand that. Right. But at the same time, you have to let yourself – you got to – I always equivocate it to being on top of the mountain and there's this river flowing underneath the mountain. And you have to understand that that river is life and it's yep. moving. And either you stay at the top and you just remain stagnant or you, you jump in and you go with it. And I decided to take the jump and I went with it. And um, there are days where there's it's these, these up and downs and my parents were always just like, you sure you want to do this? Um, but they've – came around to it. it. It was a process. I mean, it was a bit of a battle because, again, yes, my dad was a police officer who understood you make a living and because he was of a generation in which you worked. You didn't yeah. live out dreams. You worked. And, you know, work meant it don't matter whether you like your job or not. You worked and you provided for your family. And when you retire, you have all that. But right. I think what ultimately changed me was that my dad um, developed brain cancer and I watched for two years. I watched him die. And that altered everything because then to me, that river was moving rapidly and he went right with it. And I was just like, um, either you put up or you shut up. Right. And I think I, I did. I put up and I had to go with it because when you watch somebody that you care for, particularly your own father and you love them die in front of you, that will alter your perception of what life really is about. And you sacrifice. You, you OK. All right. So you, you make it work. You work harder. You work harder. Well, and the interesting thing for people who exist in the world of nine to five jobs and, and that mentality, uh, and it is, it's a mentality that most of the world shares for a reason. It keeps the economy going. It keeps the world going. Mm -hmm. uh, I do kind of secretly relish that moment where they realize how much work it is. We do, though, too. Like yes. When they're like, oh, but this isn't a really sustainable job. You spent how many hours making that? Oh, my God. I know. Uh, and so it's kind of like when you have the family member or the friend who sort of thinks that we're out here just kind of like eating ice cream and yeah. skipping <laughs> through the fields. And then they realize that like, oh, no, you spent 
19 hours on a set and you know you went home at midnight to get up at 4 a.m to turn around and do it again do it again yeah and people don't realize like I, I mean I'm a professor of cinematography at New York Film Academy and you know it's interesting to see my students understanding the process of really being a filmmaker mm-hmm. it has nothing to do with red carpets and Oscars and stuff like that it is like <laughs> you're up at five you're on set by seven and you're out by like 10 o'clock at night it's and you do that the next day and you do that the next day we were on Delfino Studios for two weeks straight, and granted, I have a, a great community of friends out here, but it's rare that I get to see all of you. I rarely get to see you. That's true. Because half the time I'm working. I feel uh, like we saw each other more when you were living in New York, honestly. Yeah, because... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But you mentioned being a professor of cinematography, and mm-hmm. outside of uh, being known as a filmmaker and director, you have a pretty prolific career working as a director of photography and cinematographer for other filmmakers. Yeah. And you also have curated a life, as I mentioned in your introduction, as a photographer. So talk to me a little bit about your uh, movement into the world of photography and kind of becoming a wizard of images, because that's what you are. You make magic with a camera. And it's, it's very... Uh, it's very inspiring to see how you navigate storytelling, both as a director, but just as someone who captures images. Thank you. Um, I've always been fascinated with the visual images. I still read books with pictures because um, visuals to me speak much louder to me. I could, I could create a story more than the words can. And, but for other people, it's the words that mean the most. For me, it's always been the pictures. Right. Um, before I became a filmmaker... I always loved to draw or I did a lot of photography as a kid, not in an artistic way, but just in a way that I was able to capture images. So when I was about 12 again, um, I was given a Kodak disc camera uh, for my confirmation for Mm -hmm. my godmother. And it was then that I was able to now start creating visual stories uh, because up to that point, I didn't have a camera. So I had a tape recorder and I would record all these things, but I wanted to make the images. So I knew through the camera I could start to do it. And then I started to dabble into film when I got to college. And then I was able to start to say, oh, I could actually make images start to move now as motion pictures do. So my love for photography kind of stems in from my childhood the same way my love for the horror genre came in from the childhood. And then uh, as I started started getting older, I started uh, getting more involved with understanding how cameras work. And I became fascinated with cameras um, from, uh, from old cameras to modern cameras to what's coming out. I'm fascinated by the technology of it. And, you know, whether it's film or it's digital, it doesn't really bother me. It's just um, how we kind of capture the image and how we create that. And then lighting is just everything. I always say, like, you write with your lens, but you paint with your lights. Oh, I like that. Now, in the world of film, from your shampoo girl movies <laughs> forward, did you initially leap to planning your first feature or did you work as a DP for other filmmakers first? I actually don't know that. So Uh, tell me a little bit about that journey. Okay. So this journey is I didn't venture into being a director first. I always knew I wanted to be a director, but I kind of felt like everybody and their mom wants to be a director. So I was like, what's the best way to get into the business? Become something that somebody really doesn't want to do the other job that most people are not going to do. And that's cinematography because it's so technical and so big. So my love for photography helped me being, helped me get into cinematography. Right. So now not only am I capturing visual images, but now they're moving and I could tell the stories this way. And the cinematographer is the second most important person on that set next to the director. Um, because now the, we're the ones in, with the lens and with the, um, the lens and the lights. And so I figured if I'm to do this, I'm going to get in as a cinematographer. So I started doing short films for students and um, then I started doing like low budget commercials and things. And then I met Alan Rokelli and that kind of just changed the entire aspect of things. And Alan is an independent, again, horror filmmaker who does a lot of horror work out in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And I met him at a, what was called a mingle mangle. Um, And it was kind of by accident, I guess it was. I, I kept putting it off. Like I'd been invited to these things and I finally, I said one day, I was like, all right, I'll go. And sitting across from me was Alan Rokelli, and he, I think he was, he, he was arguing with a friend of mine, Adam, and Alan then, Adam says, well, this is Bart, and Alan goes, so what's your story? You know, you got to know Alan. <laughs> yeah. And he goes, so what's your story? I said, oh, I'm a cinematographer. And suddenly that, that, so what's your story changed suddenly to, oh, I'm looking for a cinematographer. And that was the catch, is that everybody, if I said director, yeah. 
there's been two directors talking, we're looking for money, like everything. But when you say cinematographer, it's like to a director, like they're always looking for somebody to shoot their film. So one of the best pieces of advice that I ever had from a professor, Mark Raker in New York, was invest in yourself. Right. So while I was teaching high school, I started taking my money in and putting it into equipment because I knew you could hire me as a cinematographer, but I'll get hired faster if I have equipment. And that's how I was starting to get all the work. Right. So I handed Alan over my reel. And I think within five days, he gave me a call back. And on that reel was my short film, Vindication, uh, which I had directed and which is eventually to become a feature. And right. Alan and I got together and we made my first cinematography feature film, which is his, his film, The Bloodshed. And that kind of just started it off. And what I figured was, as I was getting more involved in the horror independent community out on the East Coast and Fangoria was getting involved and all these independent filmmakers, and then this is where I started to meet you, um, Amy Watts and Mike Watt and the whole crew on that, um, I was like, you know what? I'm starting to meet all these people, and they're working for practically nothing. I can make my feature film, and we could all work together. Right. Thus, I started making this. Honestly, I didn't take it seriously. I started making this a silly little slasher film, and it honestly developed into Vindication, which became a very serious, tragic Greek uh, type of Greek tragedy film. Right. And that's when I really started taking myself seriously. So I give credit to Alan Rokelli on that. And Vindication went through these numerous rewrites, and it took two years to film. And I had a great cast and crew that really stuck. We all stuck together because we were working on each other's projects. Right. And how I managed to make the film was I would get paychecks twice a month, and I would block out the filming scenes the days that the paychecks came in. So I'd be able to... Sometimes I'd be able to give the actors a little money or I would feed them better. <laughs> so it was either one, take the $10 or we could go out and I could get a little bit of steak for you guys. Well, and as Italians, you know, that we know that's important. We got to feed Oh, people. mangia, mangia, come stai, can see. <laughs> so, so, yeah, eating always became it. And it developed into um, an independent film. And being, I was an English teacher for a while. And uh, I love Shakespeare and I love Dante's Inferno and I love Paradise Lost by Milton. And it was so, and all the Greek tragic plays. So I incorporated all of that into Vindication. And right. it became a, really a metaphor for um, a coming out story, but it was a serial killer. Right. So I took my love for the Friday the 13th, and I took my, my, my love for being who I am, being gay man, uh, and the idea of what a coming out story is, and I just made it into a horror film. And it got into the hands of Clive Barker. And then when Clive got it, uh, he said, are you out, Bart? I said, yeah. He says, well, if you weren't, you're out now because this film kind of says it all. Yeah, that's um, true. <laughs> and uh, that's that's how it really, honestly, it all became. So Vindication, um, really, I took it seriously at that point, both as a cinematographer and as a director at that point. What I like about Vindication, and I remember seeing it for the first time, is how in a moment you kind of get a sense of you as an artist, because you're, you married so many things in that movie, but it works. There's the visual sense that you bring as a photographer, but there's that real uh, literary power. Like it wasn't, you keep calling it a slasher film, and, and it is, but it's not like kids in the woods getting attacked. There's a id and a super ego at play, and there's these like vast illusions. It's, it's such an art piece that... Um, it's really just an achievement, I think. You know, I, you. I, I can say that uh, even though we've made films together, I had nothing to do with that one. So I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm a fan of it, and I think it really shows when um, you have that passion for art and you give it all you got. Look what you can do. Yeah, I, and we had, I had, I think, I, and again, it was all my money. I had no investor, and I would block the paychecks out. And I think the movie totaled at fifty thousand uh, dollars. Uh, and that was, you know, transportation and stuff. And we didn't have known actors at the time. I mean, we had like, you know, the independent horror actors on the East Coast. Right. And everybody kind of got involved on in that. And a lot of friends and family were pitching in and stuff like that. But um, yeah, Vindication is, it, it, you're absolutely right. It goes beyond that of the slasher. Um, it is a very deep, conflicted story of a young man trying to accept who he is in life. And again, just like myself, trying to accept and understand who I am. Uh, being gay was him trying to understand and accept the fact that he is a serial killer. And once he accepts it and he understands it, he's kind of complacent with it and he's happy. And then he goes on his serial killer kind of spree, but in a very artistic way, as you said. Right. 
And I know, based on conversations that we've had, and you, you, know, you referenced the fact that you're an English teacher and you're very interested in classic art and Shakespeare and things, how important is it to you when crafting a piece of genre fiction to pull on influences from the outside? Uh, I always believe, and again, this is just me being an English teacher, uh, when I would sign papers and stuff, research was, research always wrote it. Um, I would tell my students, you go just get your research, you're going to pull from there, and it's going to just write your paper for you. So when I go in and I have to go do projects or photos or cinematography or being a director, I'm always pulling from outside sources to kind of influence me, to fill up the well of creativity, to get me to the point of, okay, how am I going to do this? Because anybody could kind of put a camera on a tripod and hit record. But why you do the things that you're doing, that's where the artistry comes in. And that kind of comes from the things that we see in the world and how we kind of embrace them and how we kind of take that into ourselves. Um, So I was always, you know, I'd go to uh, other sources for it. Most of the time, it's kind of interesting. Making a horror film, I don't usually go to the horror films. I go to the other sources. I'll go to like um, when we were doing um, Dreams for uh, Tales of Poe together, I think – Jean Cocteau's The Beauty and the Beast and mm-hmm. Derek Jarman were the two big inspirations for us. Um, I remember just talking about that. Um, the beauty, because for, for, for me, horror is so beautiful uh, in a very dark way. And, and uh, I'd always go to these other sources. So when I was doing Vindication, I was with Macbeth and Hamlet. Uh, I was doing Dante's Inferno. Uh, I think there was a, there's a little bit of Friday the 13th in there, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but I would try and steer away from it, not to be too heavily influenced from it. Well, because it gets to the point, I think, in the genre where it's so self-referential, it's almost like homogenized and incestuous that you have to look outside. (laughs) Yes, yes. Um, I guess since you mentioned Tales of Poe, we uh, should talk about it because Mm. it not only um, was the feature that you followed Vindication with, but it sort of is how our paths crossed. And you might be, even though I've had guests on that I've written with and worked with before, the first guest that I've had on that, like... We kind of had a huge journey with a motion picture together. So. Oh, my God. It's been what a journey this one was. Well, why don't you lay it out? Because this all begins with you. Tales of, you, Tales of Poe is your, your baby. So, so uh, thank you. Uh, I was working on Alan Roe Kelly's Gallery of Fear, and actress, scream queen Debbie Roshan was working with Alan on the film. And at that point, I don't think I had met Debbie at that point. And we were working, and I remember Debbie has a really great reputation as an actress. And she's really very good. And I remember watching her work, and I'm just like, God, I'd like to work with her because I think she's got such great talent here, and I, I want to give her something that she can shine with. So, you know, like all directors and actors, hey, look, when you got the project, you let me know. You know, and that's the way it normally is. And I happened to be one of my teachers in my department was out, and I substituted for him. And I didn't realize what his lesson plan was until I opened up the book, and it was The Telltale Heart. And I'm reading it with the class, and all of a sudden the light bulb went right off. And I was just like, holy shit, this is the project. And I literally went to my computer after the class was over. That's how excited I was. And I said, I I got the part for you. And she goes, what is it? I said, it's the telltale heart. And she goes, isn't that for a man? And I was like, well, not anymore. (laughs) (laughs) So I wrote the script for her and Alan Kelly. And I really kind of took Edgar Allan Poe's story, and I kept it. I kept the exact same story, but then I had to make it cinematic. And uh, so I had to kind of bookend it and make it more visual. So rather than some person talking to a camera, I created the the mental institution. And I thought it would be interesting if I had one insane patient talk to another insane patient and tell the story. And thus the story is born. Right. Um, and then I kind of, you know, layered it uh, with a little bit of... Um, old Hollywood and she's a nurse in the 1950s and she's taking care of a sick old age silent film starlet played by Alan Roe Kelly and the same stories there and uh, I thought this would be a good way to maybe not make another feature film but kind of make a short film right uh, and then as I was making Telltale Heart I think uh, in the process was like you know what let's make an anthology out of this and that's how the Tales of Poe came about and I said to Alan, here's two scripts, you know, here's, I'm sorry, here's two stories from Edgar Allan Poe, pick which one you want. And I handed him over The Cask of Amontillado, and I handed him over Mask of the Red Death. And he loved Mask of the Red Death, but for budgetary reasons, 
We too couldn't do that. Expensive. <laughs> and then Volume I ended two. <laughs> and then I ended up being the most expensive one, but I'm not part of the story yet. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, oh my God, dreams. So so Alan goes and makes uh, the Casco Montiel. So Telltale Harp. Uh, we finished. We filmed it in five days straight, and we took a year to edit and all that. And then it went out to the film festival and became a huge hit. Mm-hmm. And it went all over the world. And people were just like, "What are you doing?" Well, the my idea was to put Telltale Heart out there to get the word out that this is part of an anthology called Tales of Poe. So we're going to put three short pieces in here and no wraparound story. We right. wanted to kind of change and alter it just a little bit. Um, and Alan makes Casca of Amontillado, and then there were going to be two other filmmakers, um, but unfortunately for budgetary reasons, it just didn't work. And then that's when Michael Varadi comes into the story. <laughs> and um, we were at a convention in... Uh, was it Jersey? It was Indianapolis. It was a horror hound con- uh, convention in Indianapolis. I had already met Alan at that point, and I mm-hmm. think that Alan is like you know a fabulous sensation. I think we had met um, either through Mike Watt. Well, no, I know I met Alan Rokelli through Mike Watt, mm-hmm. but like I didn't really get to know Alan until Peaches and I. Oh my God! Yes, uh, had, came to New York. Yeah, came to New York and had Alan be part of the show. Yes. But um, we met there. I got a copy of Vindication, mm-hmm. loved it. And then um, by fate, we all ended up working on this movie called Razor Days. Yes, yes, that's it. And I was that, a cinematographer. Yeah, I was, yeah, you were the cinematographer. I was acting in it mostly as a dead body. Uh, <laughs> remember that makeup? Like, I mean, not to completely derail, but remember, no, like, fine. I was in, like, makeup effects for, like, hours on that movie. And I think we were down in the caverns, and it was cold. Yeah, it, it's this, like, survivor cannibal movie uh, that I believe just finally made it to DVD. And we shot in western Pennsylvania. It was a shoot, I think, we were on set for 11 days, and it rained the entire time. Yes, it did. And it was a cold. It was cold. It uh, uh, was so cold and there were sequences that we shot in these caverns in western Pennsylvania called Laurel Caverns Yes, and uh, we literally were like a half mile underground. underground yeah and we had to go in with the film crew poor, like our poor PA who or you you had to lug in a lot of we stuff had, yeah we had to lug it all it was yeah. again the joys of being an independent filmmaker yeah but we were all staying in a bed and breakfast mm-hmm. and um, you were in the room across from me. Yeah. And I remember one night we were all hanging out and uh, you were like, we're making this movie. And uh, I think that I was just like, okay, well, I'll write one. Like, I think I just, th- I just like forced myself on you, if I recall. And you were like, okay. <laughs> no, I, th- I, I remember, I remember kind of just being like, well, I want in. And you were like, okay, I, I, maybe. Like, but then like, no, I think, no, I, I think I remember that we were at the convention. Right. And, I remember telling you that we lost the two filmmakers and I need a, I want a writer. And you said, well, I'm a writer. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm just like, oh, yes, you are. And um, and then I think that's how it kind of developed. And then when we were making Razor Days, you were just like, I know who our lead actress is. And you're just like, it's Bet. That's right. That's how it was. So we talked at the convention that we were going to do Dreams together because I wanted you to write the piece. And then that's how we got started. Right. And then... Bet was the one that you came into my room. And was like, I want Bet, and it was just like, okay, great. And then that's right. I just... knew I was forceful about something. Yes, and like, it was I just bet. remember coming in. I was and like, was I want this, <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, okay. Um, and Bet uh, Cassat, who uh, we met on Razor Days, ended up becoming the lead of uh, Dreams. Yeah, yeah. And um, you know, technically, you're on the show for me to interview you. So uh, why don't you tell the audience what Dreams is about, and I'll dip in and out as needed. So, yeah. <laughs> so um, Dreams is so Michael and I discussed a very surreal, silent piece with just a voiceover, and we wanted to. We basically discussed um, surrealism. Uh, Alice in Wonderland, Wizard of Oz, uh, nothing, it makes sense, but it doesn't have to make sense. And it was a journey of a woman, a young person who was experiencing death and in her dream world, based on Edgar Allan Poe's dreams, um, she kind of goes through these, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Streams of consciousness and she finds love and she loses love and she comes to the understanding what life is for herself. And Michael wrote this beautiful script. And I had fallen in love with it. And um, 
we were then then we set out to make the film and then suddenly <laughs> tells a poe is a hit and suddenly it's like adrian king is on board and amy Steele is on board and then caroline williams comes on board and this film just kind of um it was like a magnet drawing all of these great horror film actresses together and we got so lucky with that um and it just turned into this beautiful piece. So Tells of Poe is Telltale Heart, Casco Monteiro, and then there's Dreams. And the way that I kind of describe it is Telltale Heart is, since I'm the director, Daddy's Little Girl. And Casco Monteiro, since I'm the cinematographer, that's my niece. And then Dreams is my special needs kid. <laughs> because it's a, such a surreal, beautiful piece. And it needed a lot of attention. And it was costume design and production design. And it took, honestly, it was the longest one of the the, the the piece and I think it took probably about if you were to put it all together I think it took like two months to make that thing Mm -hmm. and then it took quite a long time to edit it to get it exactly the way that we wanted it and um but it's it's such a beautiful piece I'm very proud of it and I think that um it's such a joy to see you know Adrian King who Mm -hmm. I grew up watching in Friday the 13th and Amy Steele from Friday the 13th too and Caroline Williams from Texas Chainsaw too uh all kind of live in this world that we created out of our out of dreams if yeah. you will <laughs> from um, a poem from a poem that was the real challenge honestly uh, when it was decided that uh, we were going to adopt a poem you know I, i've said in the past that it was like i was so excited because i'm like i don't have to work with a narrative structure i can do whatever i want and then there's that fear where you're like oh my god like how do i propose like you know suppose that i'm going to like one up edgar allan poe so I had to yeah. like find a way to like stay true to Poe's spirit, but like find the story in a piece that didn't really have one. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a real treat, especially to write this kind of silent, surrealistic film. There is dialogue in it, and it's performed by Amy Steele. She narrates the whole piece, but everything else is a visual. So mapping it out as a writer was also a unique challenge for me because anyone who listens to the show or knows my writing is I love talking and dialogue and I'm a very wordy writer uh anybody who knows me knows that I'm not a fan of dialogue and I like visuals and (laughs) so (laughs) So put us together and it was a match made in heaven it really was and I'm very proud of that piece and I'm proud of Tales of Poe in general because I think that you know it was a four year from beginning to end process making that movie and we had the premiere at the Egyptian theater here in LA and no that was magical and then the movie whizzed around the world I mean I can't even keep track of like it's still playing places which it's I think still is amazing. Places. Places. Yes. Uh, and how many awards? So many. I think, I think, you know, maybe like 30, 40. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're not counting or anything. We're not counting, but, you know, 30. And then you and I uh, ended up coming together again for uh, a piece about Montgomery Clift that was done by Billy Clift, which yes. uh, we did in a very similar fever dreamy sort of way i think that's what we do that's yes. what you and i do together yes we do we uh we really mess with people's reality i guess it kind of works but I, that's the great relationship that we have working together is that we kind of understand again it, we don't kind of we do we understand how each other works mm-hmm. and i know that you're going to always give the best and i'm always going to help to deliver the best and it's just like hey michael let's 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 get together and let's step outside of our you know, kind of, let's say the normal stuff and let's go somewhere where most people don't want to go to. Right. And I enjoy that relation, that working relationship with you in that way. And I think too, it speaks, uh, to an interest in otherness and outsiderness because we like to tell these stories that are not normal. And again, it goes back to not understanding the monster. Exactly. So I don't think there's a monster in dreams. Life is the monster. Yeah. It's a life, the monster itself. Um, I mean, this we literally just turned this into the commentary track we never had. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we don't have a commentary track. We don't. I mean, we've done enough interviews about it over the years. But I do have to ask, mm-hmm. since we're here, and since I get messages about this once a damn week at least. <laughs> I know. Are we ever going to do volume two? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, look, the, the scripts are written pretty much. Yeah. Um, in all honesty, it's just... Honestly, it's just financial. It's just mm-hmm. budget and uh, having people want it. You, you know, audiences have to kind of get behind it and say, "Hey, you know, talk about it, write about it." I think what's happening with the horror genre is that too many times they want Friday the Thirteenth again and again and again and again. You're not giving these films the chances that they deserve. 
Um, and it's great that we have another Friday the 13th and another Halloween with Jamie Lee Curtis coming out. I'm going to be the first person online to go see it. But we got to give other films the chance to grow. Like it's nice to see The Babadook come out and it's nice to see It Follows. And it's nice that the horror genre is kind of um, – what's the other one? Get Out, yeah. which is, was just named like one of the best pictures of the year from the New York Times. I think it's going to win best picture, period. I, <laughs> I, I hope so. It would be nice. Yeah. It's, it's nice that the horror genre gets that. Um, and But we have to – we have to ele- the, the audiences, particularly the genre audience, has to help in getting behind our other stuff. Now, if they don't like it, they don't like it. But there's a majority of people that do like it and they talk about it. And like you, I do. I receive people – it's like – Hey, I literally just had to mail a, a DVD out to a fan mm-hmm. because I had totally forgotten the person in the um, the Kickstarter. Oh, no. It's like two years later and people are still asking for it. So, I mean, it's out on DVD and VOD and stuff like that. But there is a volume two and there's a there's a script between the filmmakers. I know you have what you want to work with and I want to do The Pit and the Pendulum, which is literally set in the 1970s up in San Francisco uh, before the Stonewall riots right. in New York City, and it would the pit in the Pelham would be the underground where like um, uh, men went to go with each other, and um, and the police are involved in somehow being a part of that. So you want to do like the pit in the bathhouse? Yeah, yeah, I, I want to do the pit in the. Ba- I want that 1970s feel. I want that 1970s look. Um, Almost very. I want to go. So, Tales of Poe, in my opinion, is beautiful and it's clean. And I always see volume two as dirty and scratchy. Yeah. And the colors of like, it's almost like a faded poster that's been out in the sun too long. Yeah. I know that uh, I want to do a noir piece for the next one. Mm, I want so some, some dead people. And I know Alan wants to do Mask of the Red Death. He's like, I'm going to get my money. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's just financial. It's just, yeah. it's just finding that budget. <laughs> So you, we talked about this a little earlier in the episode. We're going to get off the Poe train. Enough enough about me and back to you. (laughs) Uh, We talked about this at the beginning of the episode, how you have also developed a career as a photographer and you have done artistic exhibition of your work. You recently uh, had some of your work travel and tour yeah so tell me a little bit about that and like what's it feel like to know that your your photography is in galleries around the world (laughs) um i i honestly didn't expect it it wasn't something that i was looking into um when i moved so before i moved out to la after tales of poe was done i knew i did not have money to make another feature or another short and i wasn't going to start looking for it um and after sometimes you take on a project that big, you're creatively, sometimes you're exhausted. Yeah. And the thing that I knew, which was good, has photography has always been, let's say, a hobby. But now it's grown into such a career for me. Um, so I started dabbling in doing portraits. And it all started when I took my first road trip out to Los Angeles uh, four years ago. And I said, oh, my God, I, I, I don't want to do this as a hobby. I really kind of want to create a business out of this. And it just started to develop more and more. And I started doing a lot of more um, fine art portraits. And then it started to turn into nudes. And um, the nudes started to turn into not just being a nude male, but it started taking on more visual presence. And I started adding, um, I started learning Photoshop and I started learning Lightroom more and I started to understand. And then it just kind of exploded this year in 2017 when I moved here to L.A. uh, on a on a whim, I was sent an advertisement to Artist Corner Gallery, which I had seen a friend of mine, Stefan Pinto, his work up at the gallery. And um, I remember driving into L.A. four years ago and I saw Artist Corner Gallery over in Hollywood. And I was just like, oh, I'd like my work to be there one day. And uh, I signed their mailing list and they sent this email out and they said, hey, you can you know, send photos in and maybe you'll be accepted into the gallery. So I sent like five photos. I didn't think anything of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think about a month later, without realizing it, I I never answer my phone. So there's like ten phone calls, and I was like, "Who the hell's calling me?" And finally, they left a message. Thank God. And they're like, "Hi, this is Louise from the Arts Corps Gallery. Give us a call. I think you'll, you'll like the news." And I sent in five photos. They accepted all five, and they said, "We want to display this," and they said, "We want to work with you." And that turned into uh, quite a. Uh, a, a, a turn in my career that I never expected. Um, suddenly, people are calling. People are asking me to do their photos. Models are constantly saying, hey, I want to work with you. I want to work with you. 
Um, then the opening night of the gallery came and within 90 minutes, like my piece sold, one of my pieces sold. And that's in some person's house right now. And, uh, that kind of, this <laughs> was like, this is bizarre. I wasn't expecting this, but I'm so grateful for it. And it makes me, again, my passion for photography and visuals is very strong. So I'm just like, okay, I want to continue doing this. Uh, 2018 in October, I will have a solo exhibition. Uh, so I'm working on 25 photos right now. Wow. Yeah. It's, uh, I, again, things are just constantly changing and moving, but again, it's that part of me again, it's that I'm flowing with the river of life. And it's like, I took that leap. Right. So the photography is moving. Um, and hopefully by 2020, uh, I'll have a studio. So that's the goal. Um, so, you know, life, it's like you, you got to kind of go with it. Uh, so I'm happy to answer your, to go back to the question that you asked, what were your parents like in your art career? It was like, I'm happy I did not listen. Um, otherwise I, you know, I'd be doing a job that I didn't like, but so this, this photography, the love, the 12 year old boy who may, who fell in love with horror films and photography is now doing it for a living. Right. And it brings finances in. What do you look for in capturing a perfect image? Uh, definitely a story. I mean, besides the technical stuff, a story. Mm -hmm. I want uh, emotion. Um, the models don't have to look into my camera's lens. Um, there's got to be something there. There's one photo that I took of this man who, at 55 years old, just came out of the closet. He had a wife and two kids. And that's, you know, for a 55-year-old man to come out of the closet and divorce his wife and two kids and say, this is who I am, that's a story on its own. Yeah. And uh, he was on Instagram and uh, a friend of mine and, you know, said, you got to look at this guy. And I reached out to him. I said, hey, if you're ever in L.A., you know, let me shoot you for free. And he did. He came over and um, did these beautiful portraits of him holding chains, looking towards the light. And um, I think that was Ray, Ray. And it that photo kind of became a turning point And that kind of set the tone for what the solo exhibition will be about chains and how we wear them and what holds us down and light and darkness and stuff. Um, so I look for a story. I look for emotion, um, something that an, uh, a viewer can look at it and say, I can connect to that in some way. And as a photographer, you look at models to try and find a story. Mm -hmm. But recently, you actually did some modeling of your own. And... <laughs> Your story was a little villainous. Can you <laughs> tell us about that? Yeah, I have the fortune. I, I'm so blessed to know a really great photographer here in L.A. named Stefan Pinto. And um, Stefan's work, I forgot how I found it. It was probably on Instagram or something. And I started following Stefan. And I'd write, this is kind of cool. And he had his gallery actually at Artist Corner Gallery way before mine. And I had gone there for his opening night. And I walked in and I'm um, looking at the photos. And if you're to look at Stefan, like he's this big hulk of a guy and he is the biggest comic horror geek you'd ever know and he's like the <laughs> coolest guy and we both grew up in queens new york and i didn't know this and he went to st john's university and stuff so he comes over he's like aren't you bart mastronardi and i'm just like i'm like how the hell do you know me and he goes you're bart and he goes you follow me i'm like oh yes 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 thank you so we kind of kept in touch i didn't think anything of it and i would say about two months later i get this message from him he goes i'm doing a new series and it's based on DC comic characters and you're going to be Bane. It wasn't like, it's like, you're going to be Bane. And I'm just like, whoa, like that was like, this is great. And um, so we set it up and he showed me the mask and I'm just like, Stefan, I'm getting like another mask for you. So I went on Amazon. I bought like the most expensive Bane mask and I go into his apartment and he puts up this black sheet behind me, which he staples into his bookshelf. He sits me not in a chair, but in a footstool. And he has these two little flashes, one over for the key light and one for a fill. And his bed is in the way, so he's got one leg up on the bed and the tripod like maybe about five, not even five feet away from me. So th that tells you like you don't need expensive stuff. You just need to be very creative in what you do. And we did these photos I don't, and uh, me as Bane and then, you know, stuff with just regular clothes on and stuff like that. And Stefan goes for the darkness and I love that. And... He photographed, I would say, probably almost 100 people. And then he had his exhibition over on Sunset Boulevard at um, the comic store. I, I'm not recalling the name at the moment. Is it Meltdown? Meltdown, yes. Meltdown Comics on Sunset. And there I was, along with everybody else, and there I was as Bane. And I was just like, whoa. And he put it, he made a book out of it. And I think the, the picture was probably about maybe 
three feet wide and about two feet tall. And you're, you're looking at yourself and you're like, okay, this is, this is great. So again, listening to your heart brings you to these places. And yeah, so I was, I was Bane. You were Bane. Now, do you have a favorite Batman villain? Uh, Bane actually has been, I, I, it, but I like the Christopher Nolan Bane. So yeah, so I was kind of actually happy to do that. Yeah. I love the Joker. Um, Superman though is my favorite of the the superheroes, but of the villains, I've always liked um, Deathstroke. Uh, oh. oh, I love Deathstroke because he was he was also hot and he's like this <laughs> older guy and he's just had one eye and silver fox kind of thing. Wow. Uh, oh, oh no, S- <laughs> silver daddy danger. Uh, <laughs> Uh, one thing I like to spring on guests from time to time is if I happen to know that they like a movie that people would be surprised to know that they like. Uh, for example, when I had Josh Conkel on, I mentioned that he was a fan of the Apple. Um, <laughs> I happen to know that you have a fondness for a comedy film called Billy's Hollywood Screen Kiss. Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> uh, tell me about that movie and your uh, appreciation of it. Um, it goes back to when I was kind of, when I was beginning to understand my sexuality and I kind of understood that um, I was very drawn to men and I was not drawn to women and I, I was very my coming out experience was a horror story all on its own in, in a way but to go back to Billy's Hollywood screen kiss it was a movie that I cut college class to go see and um, I went to go see it and it was about movies on top of that and he mm-hmm. was uh, he was an artist who took Polaroids, and he and I love the you know the clicking of the Polaroid and the sound of the Polaroid coming out. And Sean Haynes was in it, and uh, I remember going to see it. It was the first time I was really watching a movie about a man understanding gay love. Not the first time that he was understanding, but it was my first time understanding about gay love, and it was done in a way that I was understanding it. Um, and then you know Billy's Hollywood screen kiss, and he kisses the man, and I remember crying in the movie theater because I wanted so much to feel what he was feeling. I was feeling it, but I couldn't feel it physically with somebody because I was so scared to do that because I never was a bar person. I never was a club person. Um, Much of my experience of understanding myself was going to my college library and taking the books out and reading The Advocate and um, kind of really reading a lot and looking at pictures. So when I saw Billy's Hollywood Screen Kiss, to me, it was magical mm-hmm. and it was beautiful. It was colorful. And it's, I remember the director said um, a trifle of a film by, I forget his name, I forget who directed it. But only, and then I remember the opening scene was with the drag queens and the one drag queen rips the wig off of somebody else. And um, I remember years later, I was with you and we were going to see the show based on the con- the Rocky Horror Picture Show and... Oh, Hedvig. Oh, uh, yeah, that's when they did that Hedvig-Rocky uh, Horror mashup. And you told me the man that let us in was from Billy's Hollywood Screen Kiss. He was the drag queen that ripped the wig off the other drag queen. That's right. So here in L.A., there's a theater called Casita del Campo. And yes. when... Well, it's a Mexican restaurant called Casita del Campo. And in the basement of the Mexican restaurant is a theater called the Cavern Club Theater. Uh, one of my prior guests and a friend of yours and mine, J.T. Seaton, uh, texts yes. a lot of shows there. And uh, the shows that f- feature at the Cavern Club tend to be kind of subversive and usually feature drag elements or something kind of like a little outrageous. Uh, and the curator and manager of the theater is a local L.A. legend who goes by Mr. Dan. But before Mr. Dan referred to himself as Mr. Dan, he was a drag queen named Gina Lotriman who ran Drag Strip 66, which was That's an right. iconic uh venue here um, that I remember first seeing on USA Up all night. Yes. Uh, and Gina Lotriman is, in fact, the drag queen who rips off the wig. Oh, my God. I laughed so hard. And I remember telling him that story. It was like a childhood like dream like sitting there. But the thing is, is that's when I discovered that you were a fan of this film. Because mm-hmm. I didn't. I was just like, it was kind of like an offhanded thing. I was like, oh, that's Mr. Dan. He was in Billy, Billy Hollywood Screen Kiss. And you were like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I remember getting so excited about that. <laughs> and I remember, because I, I, I keep a journal, and I remember writing specifically about Billy's Hollywood screen kiss and I remember I would clip the newspaper articles and I would I bought the movie poster right because it just it spoke to me so much it spoke to me well and as fun as it is to talk about I did want to ask about the movie because at the beginning of this conversation we talked about how important seeing Friday the 13th the final chapter was for you yeah and what a pivotal pivotal moment that was um but I do think that uh, as LGBT people, there is also a pivotal moment when we finally see ourselves or a semblance of ourselves on screen. 
Mm. And the story that you just told about being in the movies and watching that and crying because you wanted that, that's important. Yes, it is. And that speaks to the power of movies. And in a way, I think that tale is as important to you as Friday the 13th, the final chapter. Yeah. Even if the movie did, doesn't have the impact as the other on your career art, I don't know. I just think it's really interesting because when the world, for lack of a better term, isn't made for you, we all remember that moment that we first saw ourselves in art. Yes. Yeah. We we're just we just want to understand who we are. And look, none of us ask to be who we are. We just are. That's how we're kind of created. It's kind of just genetics. And mm-hmm. I just find it absolutely cruel when human nature just says no. Right. Not accepted here. And it's just like, well, who the fuck are you? <laughs> like, you're like, I'm sorry. My, <laughs> yes, I, I okay. say far worse all the time. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, you know, I, I get angry because I remember sitting in the movie theaters and, and being emotional when I would see two men get together. And, you know, we, like so many other people, want to look at images that we can connect to and say, hey, this is good. This is okay. There's nothing wrong here. And um, and I think the horrors right now are really out in the world, are within our politics and what's coming out of Hollywood in terms of um, um, all the sexual harassment cases and stuff like that. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's just the world is changing and it needs to change, but change is about transformation and that was never going to be an easy process. So even myself coming out and looking at these images and understanding these images, is it's a transformation process. And I'm still growing. I mean, I'm 45. I'm not going to be the same in about five years from now. Right. So we all grow and our bodies change and and we have to go with that. And speaking about these movies that you saw that Mm -hmm. had impact and meaning beyond just the screen, uh, as we wind down, I'm going to ask what I like to ask everyone. What have you been watching lately? Is there anything that's really speaking to you? Um, I, man, I'm not a big television person, but I did go to the movies, but I'll say this. Uh, I saw a feud with Jessica Lange and, and, uh, Susan Sarandon, which I loved. Mm -hmm. Uh, great. It was so well done. I did see, uh, Thor Ragnarok, which I thought was one of my favorite films of the year. Um, people be like, what are you talking about? Like this thing was like a comic book come to life. Uh, I saw Justice League. So I haven't been seeing anything recent that has been like, so artsy or anything that most people would want to go see. But again, going to the movies for me has always been a great pastime to sit and relax and just kind of be with a world that I'm a part of right? and appreciate what these filmmakers have done. Um, and it's interesting to look at Thor and look at DC. I think Thor is what the world wants right now, which is a colorful, fun, humoristic world. And Justice League is the world that we're actually in right now, which is dark and it's not really popular. Right. And for me, Justice League was actually one of my favorite films of the year. I know it's got its problems, but I think it kind of is where we are right now. And Thor is just what we're, where we want the world to be. Um, so that's how I kind of looked at both movies. I look at movies very differently than most right. people do. Um, that's an interesting take, too, because superhero films are such a part of the landscape yeah. that we have to look at them as a reflection in some way. I liked Thor because it made me think of heavy metal. I liked Thor because it made me think of heavy metal and Flash Gordon yeah. from Sam Jones back in the 80s. Like I was like, this is totally Flash Gordon. It's so colorful and so over the top and... Rather than Queen, it was ACDC. Yeah. Yeah, and I thought it was so good. Like, it was honestly my favorite film. of the, One of my favorite films, personal. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't deny anything that uh, allows Kate Blanchett to drag it up. Um, what are you working on next? So, what I'm working on right now, besides the solo exhibition photography, um, there's this little script that I was handed to called The Conquer Worm. <laughs> I wasn't actually like prying for that. But oh, yes. well, <laughs> we have to talk about it. So I'm in the process of uh, moving from uh, Burbank over to Echo Park. And I'm moving actually because economically it'll allow me my art. It'll allow me the ability to get back into my, my art and my filmmaking again. Um, it's either <laughs> live in a beautiful apartment, which is like sucking the life out of you, or go and live in an arts area and allow yourself the ability to afford rent and put your money back into your to work. And I've come to the realization I can't, it's all time and time and time and time and time again. I can't separate myself from my artwork. And when I do, I get very depressed. 
and it's not a good thing. And when I'm not there, when I'm not working with it, I feel like it's a loss of a relationship. It's this marriage that I have with it. Um, so in all honesty, I am. So my 2018 is about just continuing to develop the work, but now I could put more money back into it. Now I could actually go out and be like, hey, now I have money. Let's go and make the conca worm because I can afford to make it and it could be on my dime and I don't mind anymore. Right. Where before it was just like, hey, I can't do anything because I got to pay the rent. And <laughs> this is like I could pay the rent and I still have extra money. And that's why teaching is great because it, it, it allows me that freedom to do that too. So yeah, so the conca worm, which is based on another Edgar Allan Poe story. Again, a script that, a beautiful script that Michael wrote for me is really a, um, a boulevard of broken dreams with the backdrop of Los Angeles about an artist who has gotten to a point in which she, as a musician, has to come to the realization she is not what she, what she once was, and she's trying to live as if she was. And she goes through this, not horror in the sense of like slasher, or I think this is more... Requiem for a Dream type of horror, taxi driver type of horror, this isolation, this uh, this drug of wanting to be an artist but not being the same artist and not accepting that we do have to grow. But she doesn't want to accept she wants to be where she once was. And uh, it's it's a sad story. It's sad. and I, I But again, I'm drawn to that sadness and that darkness there. So that's, that is primary for 2018, as is the photo exhibition. Excellent. So final question. You've mm-hmm. discussed the fact in uh, this interview that you are a professor and you work with film students. Mm-hmm. Um, what is one solid piece of advice that you can give to anyone out there who is chasing their craft? Understand that anything that you do, particularly in chasing something that you love, is that you have to stop chasing it and that you have to understand that you are it. You already are your dream. Your dream is just an idea inside your head. So you just have to physically create that to the reality. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is the problem that that may be the fear that most people have is that nobody's going to like this is just an idea. Nobody's going to like it. But you know what? Nobody has to like it. You have to like it. So you have to stop chasing it because you're really just chasing yourself. Your dreams exist inside of you. And therefore, you already are your dream. And you are a physical reality of the dream. And if you have been created and you exist in this earth, then the next step is you are to create something that will exist in the earth. Um, And all you have to do is create it. Does it take money? Yes. Does it take a lot of work? Yes. Does it take a lot of hours? Yes. Nobody said this was going to be easy. Um, If you want easy, then take a job that you just, again, you can just go and go do and, you know, do what you want to do with it. Having a child is not easy. Talk to any parent in the world. Oh, my God, you don't plan it sometimes. You just have to do it. You have to, again, there's that metaphor of here's the mountain and there's the river. I always, again, for me, I love nudity. So you have to strip (laughs) naked on top of the mountain and you have to get into that water and you got to go with it. Because nudity is vulnerability. You are exposing who you are and you got to go with that river. So I say stop chasing your dreams and just understand that you are your dream and just start living that out. Preach. (laughs) Mike dropped. There we go. <laughs> Bell rung. Bart, where can people find you? Um, I am. You can find me on Facebook at Bart Mastronati. You could find me on Instagram at Bart Mastronati Photography. You can find me on Twitter at Bart Mastronati. I always welcome people to contact me. I try and get back to as many people as I possibly can. Um, but yeah, you can find me on there. Uh, I'm also at the New York Film Academy. So if you have questions about film school and study and being a student, I'm more than happy to answer any questions. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. This was so much fun. Listeners, please check out Vindication, Tales of Poe, Bart's Photography, and uh, keep your eyes out for his exhibitions and work to come. This episode truly has been a dream within a dream. <laughs> this has been Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti, yours always, in Glam and Gore. Good night. Good night. And good luck. Dead for Filth has been a Reverie Studios production. The show is executive produced by Aaliyah J. Daniels. Produced by me, Michael Verratti, Dominic Segetti, and Drew Phillips. The sound engineers for this episode were Dominic Segetti and Drew Phillips. Music by My Own Cubic Stone. Edited by Drew Phillips.